If you've been following the series so far, then you'll know a core idea, which Dan has already mentioned a couple of times, is that the Psalms don't just speak to us. They're, they're not just little textbook chunks of information that we read over and absorb and chew on. There's obviously good stuff. There's a huge amount in here that we can learn by meditating on these words. But the Psalms also speak for us. They fit a range of situations which believers encounter frequently in their day-to-day lives. And as we read them, they train us and teach us to respond to those situations in a God-fearing way. But beyond that, as we read and sing and pray these psalms, God by his spirit graciously uses these words as our prayers to him. They don't just teach us, they help us to express the feelings and emotions that well up as we encounter day-to-day life. And they, they equip us to speak back and express ourselves to our loving, listening, living God. So it is that some of the Psalms, like number 150, are, are just outright praise for God. They help us express worship and joy. Others, like Psalm 3 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, show us how to appeal to God for help in the face of opposition and hardship. Some, like Psalm 19, teach us uh, and equip us to delight in his word. Others remind us of what he's done in the past and help us to respond. Or, or even like Psalm 88, they help us to cry to the Lord from despair. They recognize that following God isn't about having a cold, logical understanding of a set of doctrinal statements. It's about relationship. And people. And like it or not, we are deeply affected by emotion and feeling. That can come as a shock to people a bit down the spectrum like me. Yeah? Often we need to get our heads around the emotional sense of an issue before the logical explanation of the head knowledge are of any use. I think Psalm 51 is a good example of that. If you're a Christian here this morning, you will know that the rest of the Bible speaks of a a magnificent, good, holy, pure creator God. A God of awesome power, wisdom. He is unchanging and consistent from age to age, and he's worthy of praise and worship. You'll know that in him there is no impure or wicked thing. He is good. In fact, in in his righteous justice, this God promises to remove and destroy and wipe away all that is wrong. He won't tolerate it. He's glorious. But on the other hand, if you're a believer, you'll know that you, like me, are by nature an object of God's just anger, his wrath. We simply do not meet His standard. He is good. I am not. Even a a cursory examination of my heart reveals that. As we sang and, and thought about earlier, again and again in our lives, we've turned away from things that are good and we've knowingly pursued other stuff. We've lived in ignorance and rejection and separation from a good God. And in doing so, we've harmed ourselves and others. And the consequence of that is that we deserve God's wrath. 
We've made ourselves objectionable to him by trying to do away with him. That can't end well. There's a punishment due. There is a blood guilt to be paid. But if you're a Christian here today, you know the gospel, the good news. Christ died once for all, righteous for unrighteous, to bring you to God. Hallelujah. For those who turn to Jesus, who put their trust in him, the price is paid. No guilt remains. They can safely enter the presence of a good God. And that's our glorious treasure, isn't it? It's the graciously given free invitation to all. Come and be forgiven. Lay down your burden. Be safe in the presence of God. But here's my problem. I know that message. And my head knowledge tells me I am safe no matter what. My crime's paid for by Jesus on the cross. And in some mysterious way, when he looks on me, God sees Christ's righteousness. But how do I possibly recognize or reconcile that head knowledge with the state of my heart and the way that I live? Again, if you are a Christian here this morning, I'd imagine that like me, you are frequently jarred by that mismatch. The one where you look at the way that you've behaved over the last hours or days and you see the pride, the arrogance, the malice, and the greed, the idolatry of alcohol or sex or money, and the bitter arguments and the resentments of family and the grudges that you keep or the gossip. And you look at that and, and you question whether you have any part in God's kingdom at all because you just don't fit. I think Psalm 51 speaks to that. How do we make sense of the mismatch between the reality of our lives and our part in the plans of a holy God? I'm going to try to draw out two sides of the psalm this morning. The the first is pretty obvious. It's the reality of sin. If you look in the introduction to this psalm, uh, we see it's a psalm of David. He's a a slightly controversial figure, isn't he? He's um, often held up as a great example a hero who prefigures Jesus in the Old Testament, a prayerful, God-dependent warrior. Others find him worrying. He's a man of war, not peace. He's unashamedly polygamous. He's a disastrously failed parent. And so many of his failings don't seem to be picked up or criticised. It, it's hard to know what to make of that. And it, it has to be said, this psalm comes pretty much at David's lowest point. In that introductory section, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Just keep a thumb in Psalm 51. We'll be back soon, but flick back to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and remind ourselves of the story. The first hint in 2 Samuel 11 that something's gone awry is in verse 1. It's the time when kings go off to war, but David stays home. He sends his rather brutal henchman Joab along instead. 
In verses 2 to 5, he spots a pretty woman whose husband is off fighting David's wars. And as king, you know, it's easy for him to send for her and sleep with her. No apparent consequences. He's the ultimate power in the land. Who's going to stop him? And the story might have stopped there, but Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And so David has to cover it up in verses 6 to 13. He can't face that scandal. He brings Uriah home, cunning plan, to get him to sleep with his wife. It doesn't work. Uriah's got his priorities straight. His priority is the king's war, not his own gratification. It it wouldn't be appropriate for him to go home and enjoy leisure while the armies of Israel were fighting. And so in verses 14 to 27, David sorts it. He sends word to Joab, his fixer. And Joab sees to it that Uriah doesn't come home safe. David takes his wife. She bears him a son. And compromising sin is like a line of dominoes ticking over against each other. Can you recognize that in your life? I can. First, David put himself in an inappropriate situation. Instead of being off at war with all his officers, he's at home with all their wives. And like dominoes, that opportunity leads to adultery, which requires a cover-up, which fails. And faced with exposure, David has no choice but to wipe out his potential accuser and incidentally get what he wants. Perhaps for a while he thought he had got away with it because it's easy for us to kid ourselves that our mistakes don't matter, that they're forgotten But he had discounted God, who knows and sees everything. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan rucks up. David is confronted, probably publicly, probably in front of his whole court. His guilt is laid out for all to see. He cannot hide from it. And that is what brings us to Psalm 51. Flick back and look at verses 1 to 3. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. He's had it rammed home. He knows his transgressions. They're right there in his face. Undeniable. One commentator calls it a waking nightmare of guilt. I think it's not just this one sordid incident that he's talking about. See in verses 4 and 5. God is proved right when he judges. There's no hint that this is a one-off fluke that might be overlooked. And he acknowledges that there have been things wrong in his heart since birth. Friends who are parents tell me that you don't have to spend very long with a toddler to be convinced of original sin. Now David sees that. There is something profoundly wrong with the way that he lives. And 
He might often be able to ignore it, but these events, they've made it clear, recognisable. They, they shine an uncomfortable, painful light on the shameful reality of his heart. It doesn't fit with a holy God. And the sinner rose like dominoes. And rationally, we know he could have stopped that at any point. He could have gone off to war and avoided the tricky situation. He could have resisted the temptation. He could have found out that Bathsheba was pregnant and owned up and faced the music. It didn't need to come to murder. But I suspect we see that same folly in ourselves. Tim mentioned earlier how how John writes that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. But we're really good at that. We train ourselves to ignore our failings, to turn a blind eye, to play them down. And, And the world around us tells us that they're forgivable and that even the concept of sin's a bit outdated and bigoted. And so like David, we consciously foolishly put ourselves into risky situations. We have that one drink too many in the pub, accepting that final round when we know it's not a great idea, but it's been offered. We allow that relationship at work to develop gently. We give it space, and instead of being standoffish, aware of how it might compromise us in the future. We let ourselves watch that late night TV program or access that website pretending that we can keep our desires in check. We pass that rumour on and relish the telling of it. We allow the grudge to grow and take root instead of nipping it in the bud. We put ourselves in those situations and And then the dominoes start falling. Opportunity gives rise to temptation. And surprisingly, we don't hold out as well as we thought we would. We find ourselves somewhere that we can't deny something has gone wrong. Sometimes that might be recognized publicly as it was for David here. More often I think we see it secretly, privately in ourselves and we grieve. And Psalm 51 shows us that recognizing that, being jarred by it, is part of the Christian experience. If great King David found this, I think we will too. And it matters. Look at the consequences and the scale of sin as David sees it. See how desperate verses 1 and 2 are here as he's appealing for mercy. See how in verse 8 and over the page in 17, he describes the bone-crushing, spirit-breaking consequences of alienation from God. Do you see what he really fears in verse 11? That he would be separated from his God. That God's spirit would be revoked. I should say in the Old Testament, God gave his spirit, his anointing, to specific individuals, usually one at a time. 
They were tasked with leading and judging and blessing Israel. But God will not coexist with wickedness. He is good. And David has seen that firsthand. His predecessor, Saul, was anointed as king and prophesied and led Israel, but was disobedient. And God's spirit withdrew from him. He lost everything. Now, I think God still loved Saul. I'm I'm not sure, but I think he remained one of God's people to the end. But within his life, as the dominoes fell, he lost everything as a consequence of sin. It's no laughing matter. It's, It's bigger than just him as well. Look at verses 18 and 19. Do you see that the implication there is that without God's mercy for David's heart, the whole chain of blessings to develop Zion and Jerusalem might fail. Indeed, if you read on through 2 Samuel, you see David's sin bearing fruit. His dysfunctional family, his subsequent failure as a father sees his son Amnon raping his half-sister Tamar. And after David's failure to deal with that, His son Absalom murders Amnon and ends up rising in civil war. Sin has disastrous consequences. It leaves hurt and grudges and even apparently innocuous patterns of thinking that affect the way that we interact much later in life. And I think maybe the scariest thing in this psalm is that we don't get to set the record straight. Look at verse 16. There is no sacrifice that David or a priest can give to absolve him. Not one of the rituals laid out in great detail in the books of the law has the power to take away David's guilt and reintegrate him with God. Heal his broken bones. Now David knows only God could do this. And this whole psalm is an appeal to God to act. Verses 1 and 2. Oh God, have mercy. Hide my transgressions. Wash me clean. Verses 10 and 12. Oh God, purify me. Restore me. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guilt, which carried the death penalty. Verses 18 and 19. Oh God, prosper your people instead of bringing judgment. I think most evocatively, verse 7. Oh God, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop refers to certain herbs. We, we don't really know quite which ones, but bunches of them would be used in the sacrificial system, almost like paintbrushes. In the Passover in Egypt, it was hyssop that was used to daub the blood of the sacrificial lamb over the doorways of the household so that God's avenging angel would pass that place by unharmed. In later rituals, priests would use bunches of hyssop to sprinkle the blood of sacrifices on the altar and on the people, marking them clean. And do you see How David sees this as if through a dark glass. He can't quite make out the details. 
But he knows there is no sacrifice he can offer that's pleasing to God beyond a penitent heart, cracked by the way that God has revealed his sin. And yet he prays, God, provide a sacrifice. I know you're able, God. Make me clean. And we get to see this with New Testament eyes. We see the fulfillment of Psalm 51 in Jesus, who at the cross died, a a sacrificial lamb, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring sinners to God. We see how verse 16 there is trumped by the ultimate sacrifice. God gives his precious beloved son for us. His blood ritually sprinkled on David, on you, on me, to make us clean. And in a while, that's what we'll remember as we come to communion, celebrating that. David's praying, there is nothing I can do to atone for my sin, but somehow I trust that you can, God. He needs Jesus. Looking back at this now, if you're a Christian... We know this so much more securely than David ever did. We know that with the way the Spirit is poured out on God's people today, it will never be revoked. Let me say this again. If you're a penitent believer in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can remove you from his promise. But it's still jarring, isn't it? We sang earlier, we've committed two sins. We thought about that with Tim. We've turned away from God, a source of living water, and sought satisfaction in cracked, dry cisterns. And I know that despite my best desires, that doesn't change on becoming a Christian. If you're listening to this and you're not a believer, let me say, Christianity is never about being good bargaining our way to heaven because we're just rubbish at that. In fact, one of the central experiences of being a follower of Christ seems to be like David being made aware again and again of brokenness. It often seems that the longer we go on for as Christians, the more aware we become of just how badly we fit the bill. If you're not sure, check that out with some of the older members of the congregation. We must often be jarred and unsettled like this. How can I be saved? If I still act and think like this, if even while I'm struggling with these questions, my heart and imagination are pursuing other foolish things. But this isn't a psalm just about David's sin and repentance. That's a given. It's necessary background. This is also a psalm about God's character. And that's where we find the resolution for our emotional quandary. That the second aspect that I want to look at is that Psalm 51 tells us our God delights in turning broken sinners to faithful worship. That's how he chooses to be glorified. I don't know if you noticed the grammar As David prays to God here. In verses 1 and 2. And in 7 to 12. 
for a repentant sinner, David is pretty free with the imperative, with the orders, isn't he? It's almost as if he's telling God the way it's going to be. Or in verses 13 to 15, hang on. Is he bargaining? As if he's got a leg to stand on. But I don't think that, that's it. David's not being cocky. He genuinely does have a broken spirit. Bone-crushing guilt and consciousness of his sin. He knows what he deserves. But at the same time, he knows the character of his God. And so he can pray with utter confidence that God will somehow remain faithful to his promises. Can you see what God is like according to this psalm? I suppose he, he, he's like a loving parent with that toddler. The child does wrong and is naughty. That's in their nature. And the parent will rebuke them, even punish them, but always with the overarching desire that their child grow into something good. And how does a, a toddler view a parent and appeal to them? Complete confidence and trust. Look at verses 3 to 5. David says, I am rubbish. But in verse 6, just as surely, yet you desired faithfulness in me. You taught me wisdom. There's a mystery of God here. A deep revelation about his character. That although in verse 16 there is no sacrifice, no act of righteousness that we can bring that would mean anything, he's the sovereign creator. What have we got that he doesn't already own? All the same, in verse 17, when the broken, wretched creatures who've rejected him turn around and ask for help, he doesn't despise them. Quite the opposite. In verse 6, he desires faithfulness in them. He teaches them wisdom. And so verse 7, he cleanses them with a better sacrifice. He calls broken bones to gladness and rejoicing in verse 8. And verse 9, he restores relationship. That's glorious. The, The way that he turns his face back to his beloved children. Blotting out forever the stain of the wickedness. As if it had never been. He takes warped, foolish, lost sinners like David. And he builds a new creation. Something that's better. Something which properly shows off his character and his glory. He gives them a pure heart. And a steadfast spirit. Our God takes dross... And transforms it into treasure. And verses 13 to 15. These aren't David bargaining. Their cause and effect. As a recreator God. Uses fallen fools like David. And turns them back to him. Renewing them and rebuilding them. And so. Rescuing lost sheep. And causing them to turn other sinners back to relationship with him. He frees them from guilt and so opens their mouths to praise him. 
And that, in verses 18 and 19, is how he chooses to prosper Zion. That's how he builds his kingdom. That's what our God delights in. He loves the sacrifices of the righteous purely because he has made his people that way. He has done the reforming and he has used the weakest things in the world to show his glory. The character of our God in Psalm 51 is that he delights in turning broken sinners to faithful worship. So do you struggle with that jarring clash? How can God put up with me? Have I not counted myself out of his grace with consistent wrong-heartedness? Do you see those dominoes ticking over predictably again and again as you give in to the same temptations? Maybe despite years as a Christian. Are you convicted of that and burdened down? Or perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And you're you're just testing these ideas out, tasting them. And knowing yourself, you struggle to see how you could be a good person to follow Jesus. Or why on earth a good God would bother to have patience with you. Jesus says, come to me for rest. And he rejoices as he marks us clean and guiltless with his blood. That's his joy. It's his desire. Do you remember those parables he told of the the shouts for joy in heaven as one lost sheep is brought home? Our God delights in transforming broken hearts like us into rejoicing children. So in a moment, we get to come to communion with confidence. We get to pray for forgiveness. Yes, we're with broken, guilty hearts, but at the same time, joy. Because God delights in that, in rescuing his people. And he has sprinkled us with the blood of a better sacrifice. And remember, it's not a one-off thing. This psalm was written to be sung again and again. To be a Christian it, it is not one change once. It's, it's a daily thing, being made conscious of our inadequacies. But daily worshipping a saviour who, despite those, turns his face to us and ours to him. Again, ask the older members of the congregation or your house group it, if you're not sure about that. And let me appeal to you older Christians. Keep reminding us of it. Season our conversations with salt. This is the heart of the gospel. Our God loves to rescue us. Do you want to be an evangelist? Do you want to teach others around you the wonders of God's grace? Verse 13, then I will teach. That's rooted in being changed ourselves. In Christ's delight in reforming us, dwell 
on that mystery. Chew it over. Do you want to be part of a vibrant, local, living church? I'll look at verses 17 to 19. This is step one. Keep coming to Jesus for grace and renewal that he would be glorified. Because that's how he prospers his people. Do you want to praise God? Well, if this is true of you, you will. Because God delights in taking broken sinners like us and opening our mouths to sing his righteousness. In a moment we'll do that, we'll sing our thanks, but first let me finish with a prayer. Lord God, open our eyes and hearts to see your character and your desire for us. Convict us daily of our wrongness. Let us have no illusions that we can stand alone. But amaze us as well every day with your grace. Change our hearts and our actions and open our mouths to teach others of you and to worship your name. Amen.